everybody, and welcome back to the Future of Fraud Investigation. Today's special guest is the Chief of Investigations for the Office of the City Auditor in Austin, Texas. After obtaining his law degree from DePaul University in 2008, he worked as an attorney, then investigator uh, for the District of Columbia, and an investigative compliance consultant for the United Health Group. While he was senior investigator for the Office of the City Auditor from 2014 to 2016, he managed investigations that focus on conflicts of interest, misuse of city resources, tax fraud, and abuse of official position. Now, as Chief of Investigations since 2018, he manages a team of investigators that look into all fraud, waste, and abuse cases for the city of Austin's operations. I would like to give a warm welcome to Brian Malloy. Hi, Brian. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Duran. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for that warm welcome and introduction. Of course. So, as a certified, you know, fraud examiner and certified governmental um, auditing professional, you have quite a, you know, an extensive list of experience with investigations under your belt. Can you tell our audience a little more about your journey? Uh, it looks like you started out as a um, law clerk at the Attorney's um, Title Guarantee Fund and worked your way up to, um, you know, Chief of Investigations here in Austin. So, um, how do you see your journey so far? Well, um, it, it was an unpredictable journey, is, is what I'd say. I, I went to law school thinking I would go into intellectual property law when I got into law school, I started um, getting interested in, um, maybe for more practical reasons, interested in real estate law. That's why I worked at Attorney's Title Guarantee Fund, um, starting as a law clerk. Um, and then by the end of law school, I was most interested in antitrust law. At no point in those three interest areas was I thinking about investigations other than, you know, movies and TV shows with investigators are entertaining to watch. Right. Um, and no one watches TV shows about real estate lawyers or, or intellectual property. Um, but um, after I graduated, I moved to D.C. Uh, I was practicing law um, in general litigation, not even in the, some of those areas that I was uh, focused on when I was in law school. And I guess just being in D.C. at the center of government, um, meeting people who work for the FBI or the State Department or the Secret Service and hearing about uh, their careers, that's what got me interested in investigations. And so eventually took the plunge, got out of being an attorney, and took the first investigative job I could get, which was for the District of Columbia, focusing on their alcohol beverage regulator. Um, it was a great job for learning about investigations, a horrible job for quality of life. Uh, we had to work till three or four in the morning, um, alternating night shifts and day shifts, so it just wrecked your sleep. Uh, just was uh, looking back at it, I'm glad I did it when I was young, because I couldn't do it now. Um, but it did cement that I, I um, was drawn to investigations and that's where I wanted my career to go. And so then I just kept looking for new opportunities, uh, jobs with better hours, jobs <laughs> with better purview than working at CD bars at three in the morning. Um, and so that's that's how I describe my journey. Is, um, it had a lot of twists and turns, went in unexpected ways, and I just sort of had to figure out what I was really drawn to and then take opportunities when they came about. Yeah, perfect. Thank you, Brian. Sounds like a turbulent start, but you found what you're passionate about, which is awesome. So, you know, as chief of investigations, you lead and teach a team of investigators. Um, 
According to your opinion, what do you think young professionals seem to misunderstand about um, fraud investigation? And how do you think you could fix it? Well, uh, it's a great question. Uh, I've had the pleasure of hiring three out of the four members of my team. And so really getting uh, to introduce them to the city of Austin and how we conduct fraud investigations. And so I've, I've gotten to see sort of what their their guesses are, or what they anticipate work would be like, and then what it's actually like. I think most young investigators might um, be disappointed when they first get into it, uh, thinking that every case is going to be a big case, or every case is going to, uh, you're going to prove fraud in every case, and then it's going to get a lot of media attention, or you're going to recover, you know, millions of dollars or something like that. And that's just not the case. Um, so many cases, uh, you know, they, they start with a promising lead or a promising allegation, uh, but they turned out there was no fraud. You know, it was it was a misunderstanding or, or your informant was connecting two dots that just aren't connected. Mm -hmm. um, and so you got to be ready to deal, uh, I guess, change your mindset from a good case is one where you have, you find fraud to a good case is one where you find the truth. And whether it's no fraud or fraud, that's that's a quality outcome. And you did your job and you did it well. Um, so that that's, I think, one major reset or refocus that a new fraud investigator um, could take. Awesome. That sounds great. Yeah, like you said, the ultimate goal is finding the truth, whether or not, you know, there was fraud in that case. And maybe for the younger investigators, they'd they kind of almost wish there was, so they kind of have that, you know, experience under their belt. But of course, like you said, um, finding the truth is most important. That's awesome. Yeah. And, and there's plenty of fraud out there, young investigators. So eventually, you'll, you'll find the, that big case that you're looking for. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, you know, for those types of case that cases that you work on, like fraud, um, abuse, um, et cetera. What do you see any challenges with dealing with digital data? And if so, um, you know, how does that kind of come into play in these investigations? Sure. There are plenty of challenges that come with digital um, information, digital data um, that are new or different than when you compare it to um, more traditional hard copies. Um, a lot of it has to do with, uh, uh, it can come up in chain of custody, figuring out who had control of the digital item when, who made changes to it. Um, you know, is it is this a legit copy? Am I, am I looking at something that, that's accurate or am I looking at something that's been falsified or, or um, doctored in any way? And the only way that I know that you can deal with those challenges is by having tech, the technical expertise, either yourself or people on your team with that technical expertise that um, know how to um, dig into the metadata of a document and identify who's touched it, when they touched it, what they did to it, who was the original creator, who got transmitted to, and when, who else had access to it, just so you know who your, your scope of subjects are, your scope of witnesses um, is. You, you know, you don't want to just look at the last person who looked at the document or talked to it. You want to know everyone who could have done any of that stuff um, over the course of your investigation. So you really need that technical expertise or at least access to someone with that technical expertise or your case isn't going to come together or your case is going to have holes in it. Definitely, yeah. What types of documents do you typically look at for your investigations or what are you trying to get at the heart of, I guess? I mean, whether you're in investigations or not, it's kind of uh, the same documents that everybody's dealing with in, in any kind of job. So we always want to do email reviews if we're, if we're looking at a conflict of interest. So we want to connect our subject to a city vendor or somebody else in the city, we, we want to go through their emails um, that, you know, uh, without without um, being super invasive, but we want to look at the relevant emails. We want to look at the relevant documents. 
Um, so it, Word documents, PDFs, just any real file format um, you can come up with. So we work with our technical teams to make sure where we um, select relevant and appropriate search terms that are specific to our concern and not overly broad. But we have enough search terms that will really catch all the relevant information. And then we'll search for any file format and we'll also do a web browsing history and a email history. We'll pull all that in and then um, do our review to see if we have any documents that really hit to the heart of the matter and can help us tell the story of whether fraud did happen or didn't happen. Got it. Yeah. So it sounds like you deal with a wide array of different types of documents, like you said, emails, um, pro probably phone records, I'm guessing. Um, yeah. So, yeah. you know, what would you say is your average amount of time that you spend on your investigations? And do you think there is a way to minimize that anymore? So this was a tough question. I, I you shared what some of the questions might be in advance. Um, I, I didn't know it off the top of my head. I had to go back and look at our case records. A, a fair estimate is from report from when an issue is reported to us um, to when we have a substantiated conclusion that's published. We're looking at about a year. Uh, yeah, it sounds like a long time. It you know it feels like a long time when you're living it. Um, now that does include um, just by how uh, city code of the city of Austin works. Procedures we need to take before we publish a report. We need to give the subject 20 business days. That's rough, you know, turns into an extra month, basically, and a chance to respond. We need to give the relevant department a chance to respond. So the last couple of months are just sort of like doing all the reporting steps we need to take to then publish a report. But still, that's you're looking at 10 months of investigation, um, which, you know, if you're young or older, experienced investigator, you know, you want when you're in an exciting investigation, you want to get it done. You want to get to that, that final conclusion. So 10 months can seem like a long time. Yeah. Uh, in reality, it, it, it goes by. I think the biggest thing slowing my team down or in my experience in, in the various places I worked is just the number of investigators we have and the number of investigations coming in. So the my average investigator um, has somewhere between five and 10 investigations on their plate at any given time. And so you, you even if you got a great a great case, you know you're going to substantiate it. You got a lot of evidence, and now you're just kind of collecting the rest of the story so that you can tell a complete story and an accurate story. Um, you know you're splitting your time five other ways with other cases, so you can only you only have so many hours in a week. And I think that that's the biggest concern I have with my team. Obviously, there's always ways you can get more efficient, more organized, and that's what I'm coaching most of my investigators on. Is, is the best way to stay organized and be productive for eight hours a day rather than having your eight hour day turn into a four hour day. Right, got it. Sounds like you don't have a lack of um, material or you know investigations that you have to go through. You guys stay pretty busy. Um, yeah, we put, a, we put a lot of effort into making sure everyone in the city knows how to contact us when they see a red flag. And so that, that keeps us very busy. Yeah, that's great. You know, speaking of the city, um, it seems like it's great to see that you're uh, improving the city's ethics structure through the city code um, enhancements and education efforts. Can you tell us a little more um, about that? What are some of the challenges you face and how are you solving them? Yeah, um, so one thing we do every year is we'll, we'll do a review of all the allegations that came into our office um, and what the dispositions of those allegations were, whether they end up being not fraud, waste, and abuse or fraud, waste, and abuse, but unsubstantiated or substantiated, what departments they come from, what issues they focused on. And then we'll work with our law department who puts together the city's annual ethics training and so that we can point, uh, point them in the right direction. We'll be like, these are the most common issues we've seen most recently. These are the most common departments that are coming up. 
so that they can tailor the annual ethics training for the city to be topic relevant and then also um, keep a better eye on certain departments to make sure that they're getting all the employees educated on, on uh, annual ethics training. Additionally, with some of the bigger departments in the city that have a lot of allegations come in, I'll work with either their internal HR team or their, some of them have an internal auditor uh, to go over what trends I've seen in that department in the last year so that they can change their internal risk assessments and figure out what they want to focus on for the coming year so that, you know, it's, there's always a lag. We're using last year's data to inform this year's decisions, but uh, that's as close as we can get to real-time improvement. That's great. So it just seems like it's trying to keep everyone in the city informed and updated um, so it comes through in those, those education efforts. Yeah. So I want to delve into um, your way of de dealing with a case um, specifically, getting to more specifics. I, I often find that everyone does have a different way of dealing with their fraud investigations. Um, so I, it says that when you were senior investigator for you know, the um, city auditor's office, you used both convert and overt methods of conducting investigations. Can you elaborate on what that means? And overall, what is your way? of conducting a fraud investigation? Sure. Um, I think a lot of people are familiar with covert investigations. That's basically when you're doing something, like a, you hear it about in TV shows, they'll say undercover. Mm -hmm. um, so anytime we're doing like a, a digital document poll, that's gonna be covert. The subject of our investigation isn't gonna be made aware that we're pulling emails based on search terms or anything like that. So covert's anything where they don't the subject doesn't know we're doing it, or we hope the subject doesn't know we're doing it. Gilbert, um, you know, the exact opposite. Um, we, we're, we're taking a step that is very public. And we that isn't necessarily any, any it's not very common, or it's not a, a mandatory step in any investigation, but sometimes your investigation is, um, isn't going anywhere, or you're not, you got uh, a good, initial uh, intake with some information, but they didn't give you a lot of witnesses to talk to, or you're not sure who the right witnesses are to talk to, um, but it looks like a, it's a legitimate fraud, waste, and abuse concern, and, and we need to um, sort of drum up information or, or the right people to talk to. Well, the way you can do that is just to make sure everyone in that department or that division of that department knows you got a complaint and you're looking into it. And so you, you don't, uh, you don't quietly call people in for one-on-one -on -one meetings, you go over to the to that workstation, you introduce yourself, you, you know, you walk around the workstation, you introduce yourself to people and you start saying, you know, you very overtly say, you know, we have concerns about um, of people abusing their position um, with vendor selection and um, you make sure everyone around knows what you're looking into, that you are looking into it. Sometimes it has a side benefit of uh, if something bad's going on, people will at least stop doing it because they'll think you're on to them. Uh, but the, yeah, the main goal there is it's exactly, and then but uh, the main goal for doing something so overt like that is to hopefully someone who knows something about it who doesn't you know isn't involved in it will realize oh this is a good person in the city you know I, I've always been concerned about this behavior now I know they're looking into it I'll reach out to Brian after he leaves because maybe I don't want my coworkers knowing it but once Brian goes home for the day, I can look him up on um, the city's directory and give him a call tomorrow and let him know, hey, I heard about these concerns, I want to talk to you about it. And it's been successful in the past when we didn't know who to talk to at first and then all of a sudden witnesses um, come and talk to us. Now we don't have to do that, it's not very common, but that's what I mean when I say we did overt means, it's basically just being very conspicuous and letting people know 
what the issue is so that they can come to you and, and share more information. Right. So it seems like you have two different approaches, basically, kind of keeping it hush-hush or being open with them might even, see, like you said, temporarily solve the problem or if someone thinks they're going to get caught, you know. Um, so what would you say, um, you know, for those that are just starting their investigation careers, uh, what would you say are some tips to recognize um, the red flags in an investigation? Well, um, I mean, there, there's so many different different things that might be relevant. It, it's it, it's a it's a good question. It's just a broad question because there can be so many different types of, of investigations. What you do for a conflict of interest might be different for a, a, a standard fraud or a misappropriation of assets. Um, I would say definitely it might not be a perfect answer to your question about what what's a red flag that you should notice, but you definitely in this day and age want to do those um, digital document pulls. So you do want to look at computer forensics, figure out who in your organization it, it, it has that technical expertise, and then do really targeted but broad searches. Like, uh, and when I say broad, I don't, uh, I mean like have a lot of search terms that might be relevant to the topic you're looking at. Uh, don't restrict yourself to, you know, too few. Um, and so, the, the, you know, the documents are going to tell a story, you know, in the vast majority of your cases. So go to the emails, go to, go to the files on, go to the browser history and then see what that story tells you and, and let that lead you in your next step. Um, what's going to jump out as a red flag? I don't know. It's just too context specific, but you, you're putting yourself in the right place to find that stuff if you, if you collect it and you collect it right away with accurate search terms. Got it. So keep your uh, scopes broader so that way you can kind of look at everything. Um, so what would you say is the most common type of case you kind of receive there at the city? Um, what would it, I know it's hard to say what a typical case would look like, but what are the most common yeah. ones? Uh, most common over the last several years is going to be misuse of city resources. That's, uh, mm -hmm. And in nine times out of ten cases, that's somebody who has secondary employment, they started their own business, or maybe they work for somebody else, or maybe not even something you'd necessarily say is a formal business, but they, they have some other way they make money and where the, they're like fixing up motorcycles. You know, they, they don't have an LLC or a business set up around it, but they're using their city computer. And, and it's even more common in this day and age with so many people working from home. They're not in an office, so no one's looking over their shoulder, but they're using their city computer, their city phone, uh, their city um, email, um, any, any of that sort of tech, technological stuff to advance their other business and make money that way. Um, we call that misuse of city resources in the city, and that's over the last three or four years, our, our most common um, violation. We've seen an uptick lately in conflicts of interest and then also waste, which is something else we investigate. Um, so that, that'd be making overly extravagant purchases or just um, redundant purchases uh, or like sloppy purchases. Like they, they um, you know, you bought two car, you bought, um, a very fancy version of a car than what the department really needed to do the job and you know you spent twenty seven thousand dollars more than you needed to that's sort of an example of waste got it would you say those types of cases are intentional a lot of times or sometimes unintentional too i know i don't think anyone's really setting out to, to waste so yeah not intentional but um they're they're making the choice not to maybe care enough about the job or, or look over or be um, double check what they're doing as much. And so that's how they end up wasting city resources because they're just not being careful enough or they're not following procedures that are designed to 
catch stuff like that, they're, they're going the easy route or the quick route, and then it ends up wasting money. What would you say um, has been the most interesting case that you've dealt with so far, either with the city of Austin or before that? Um, and what were the biggest takeaways, you think, from that case? Well, definitely the most recent interesting case was the city of Austin. Um, we had an employee who was in the library, uh, Austin Public Library Division, who was in charge of purchasing. And uh, they ended up, um, over time, acquiring access to several city credit cards, kind of Got, made themselves essential both in the ordering and the receiving of good side. And what they did with that power was that they bought roughly 10 times more printer toner than the library system actually needed. And then they would steal that printer toner, take it home and sell it online. Um, and they stole somewhere in the neighborhood of $1.3 million in printer toner. I can't even fathom how much toner that would have to be. That's crazy. Yeah. And, and, I mean, toner is expensive. And um, you know, comes in boxes that are easy to carry to your car. Yeah. Um, so it's a good, it's got a good size per value ratio. If you're ever thinking of <laughs> asset misappropriation, Duran, in the future. Printer <laughs> toner. That's interesting. Yeah. Never would have thought. Yeah. He, the same individual stole a lot of uh, personal electronics. Like the library does, do a lot of after-school programs where they're buying video games for stuff uh, for for kids in the city. Uh, and he realized, oh, if I'm buying a PlayStation, you know, the next day I'll just buy another PlayStation and my boss won't catch it. They'll think they're, they're both for the program. And so then they, they were stealing that stuff, too. But the book was that printer toner. And it's yeah, pretty surprising that that was such, uh, such a uh, um, financially valuable resource for him. Right. It's interesting how these, these people kind of think, uh, you know, about these sorts of even like, you know, little things like printer toner. I never would have thought. But um yeah. yeah, so, you know, looking forward, what is one thing you would want to change about the fraud investigation industry if you had, you know, all the resources in the world? I'd say recruitment into the industry really needs to expand. It needs to, to broaden its base. There are just way too few women, way too few people of color. Um, I mentioned earlier in the interview, I, you know, I've had a chance to hire three members of my team and just seeing who applies for the job, it's, it's not a diverse pool right now. Yeah. So recruitment, you know, down to the high school or college level and, and, and telling people what an interesting and valuable profession this, this is to be in just to get more people interested in it, specifically more women and people of color into it. Yeah, it sounds like there's kind of a hole to fill in terms of diversity um, in the fraud investigation industry. So that's really interesting to hear that you'd like to see more recruitment, um, you know, for maybe even like younger investigators in the future, you know. So looking, I have a couple of closing questions here then for you, um, Brian. So in your opinion, what are some of the critical skills that fraud investigators um, should have, you know, for those that are just starting out? What do you think is necessary to be successful in this industry? Uh, th things I look for um, in a successful investigator are um, aggressiveness is too strong, but you you want to you want to have that personality where you won't um, let the person you're interviewing like sort of sidetrack you. You want to be uh, be able to have that uh, that sort of um, attitude where you can take control of the conversation and get back on point because so many fraudsters or even even people that are just nervous to talk to you want to sidestep issues and you can't just let the conversation wander off. You really got to stay on point and control and, and politely and professionally 
get back to the topic at hand. So you want someone who, who's got a lot of confidence. Um, and if you, you don't currently feel like you have it, you can work on building it. It is a skill you can build, and it will make you a better fraud, fraud investigator. If you believe in yourself and know you're, you're, the steps you're taking are the right steps, the questions you're asking are the right questions, that, that confidence will just grow and grow. Beyond that, you just want to be someone who is uh, really curious, who wants to solve puzzles and problems, because that's really what an allegation is. It's a, a puzzle you got to solve, and um, at the end you figure out, you know, is fraud going on or fraud isn't going on. Um, and if you got that kind of like you want to solve anything, no matter how difficult it is, you're going to be a really successful fraud investigator. That's great. So curiosity and confidence, it sounds like. Yeah. That's awesome. So, you know, um, do you have any last-minute advice for um you know, young professionals that are just entering this domain, um, maybe looking back onto how you started, what's something you wish you would have known then that you could, you know, tell someone who's starting out now? Um, it sounds, uh, um, I know I, I work in the public sector, but sometimes when you think about investigations uh, and fraud, you only think about police or the FBI or, or the State Department, Secret Service, stuff like that. And there's so much, there's such a, just a broader, more broad field than fraud investigation. You don't have to, you know, want to be a cop or have a badge or have a gun. If, if those things don't appeal to you, you can still get into fraud investigation in the private sector. There are internal fraud teams at every major company or, or mid-sized company. Um, there are administrative fraud teams like mine for the city of Austin. We're still government, but we're, you know, we're uh, just administrative. So there's no badges, there's no weapons, there's no weapon training, there's no physical fitness training. I mean, everyone wants to, everyone wants to be in shape and healthy, but there's no push of requirement to get in the door here. Um, and so just remember, if, if you're interested in, in this line of work, you don't have to go the, the criminal route. You, you can go administrative, you can go private sector, and there's just tons of opportunity and, and ways to break it. Right. So it sounds like this is honestly a very um, broad, um, you know, scope or, you know, for in terms of um, as an industry, there's a lot you can do with it, not just, you know, what you see on TV typically for investigators. So um, it's great to see, you know, that kind of perspective, at least, you know, from a city, how you can make a difference for your local community. Um, so I just want to say, you know, thank you so much, Brian, for, um, you know, talking with us today. I appreciate all of the detailed information you gave and, you know, great advice for those starting out. Uh, so thank you um, again and hope you have a good day. Yeah, it was a pleasure and th thanks for uh, interviewing me. I had a great time, Duran. Thank you.